my name is Tom Thatcher. I'm in the Department of Family Medicine at Mayo Clinic, where I've been since 2007. I'll tell you a little bit more about where I was prior to that in a few minutes, but uh, I apologize in advance for my uh, laryngitis, so I hope you bear with me as we uh, cover the topic of nutritional diseases in children and with a particular focus on malnutrition. I don't have anything to disclose uh, that's relevant to this talk. Um, I do want to tell you a little bit about my background. I uh, worked in Africa, in the West African country of Nigeria, for almost 20 years. For the first four years, I worked in a rural area with my family, with uh, the Mission Agency Campus Crusade for Christ, uh, and we did community health evangelism work. And then we moved to the larger city of Jos, where I was asked to develop a family medicine training program at the teaching hospital there. So um, that's a bit about my background. Uh, it primarily relates to uh, treating children in uh, West Africa and Nigeria in particular. Our objectives for this talk are to equip you to describe some of the interactions of factors that affect nutritional status in children. And then we want to list for you the steps of treatment for severe acute malnutrition. And uh, if there's time, we'll cover also recognizing some important vitamin and mineral deficiencies. But our focus will primarily be on the treatment and uh, management of m severe acute malnutrition. So let me start with a typical case that may present to you a 15-month-old male presents in Nigeria with persistent diarrhea for three weeks. He had measles two months ago and has had a poor appetite. He discontinued breastfeeding one month ago and his diet is primarily corn porridge. He has not started walking. His weight, height for age Z-score is minus 2.2 standard deviations and weight for height Z-score is minus 3.1 standard deviations. So which one of these statements do you think is true? A, the child has a severe acute malnutrition. B, inadequate energy intake is the sole cause of this condition. C, the child should be commenced on a high-protein diet supplying 200 calories per kilo per day. Oral rehydration solution is not indicated if edema is present, and antibiotic treatment should await the results of further investigations. You want to offer any answers? Okay, well, the correct answer is A, and we'll see why that's true. <clears throat> There are six categories of essential nutrients. Carbohydrates, protein, fats, minerals, vitamins, and water. When we talk about malnutrition, we, it technically could refer to impaired nutrition in any area, uh, but typically, when, and it can be either overnutrition or undernutrition. Overnutrition being obesity, for example, but when we talk about malnutrition, generally we're referring to undernutrition, which is due to inadequate energy intake. Now, how, in terms of defining malnutrition, there are various uh, definitions that are available to you. The one that's probably the most preferred is using what we call the Z-score. And this is the number of standard deviations above or below the mean uh, reference. So, for example, uh, stunting refers to a height for age Z-score that's more than two standard deviations below the mean height for age Z-score based on reference growth reference curves. And the advantage of this is it, you can apply it to any age and you can compare one, a child of one age with a child of another age. For example, if you were doing some research uh, studies as well. Now, stunting is an indicator of chronic malnutrition when the height, the linear growth is impaired. Wasting, on the other hand, is a weight for height z-score that's more than two standard deviations below the mean value. And this uh, is 
defined as acute undernutrition. Now, severe wasting is when your uh, child is more than three standard deviations below the median. And you can see from this graph that once you get below three standard deviations, the odds of mortality, of dying from malnutrition, rise significantly. And so that's really the definition of severe acute malnutrition is when the white for height z-score is more than three standard deviations below the mean, or minus three and below. Underweight is not as useful uh, for defining malnutrition. And the reason is, is because it can indicate either wasting or stunting. And you, it, it will increase when a child either gets fatter or gets taller. So we don't typically look at the weight for age as much. Now, other methods used for classifying malnutrition include using a percentile below the third percentile. You may be accustomed to using growth percentiles here in the U.S., but they're uh, not as uh, uh, frequently used overseas. The welcome classification you may have heard of where you have marasmus or quashiorcore or marasmic quashiorcore is another classification. A quick reference that may be useful for you in a clinic setting is if a child at one year is below 8 kilos and below 10 kilos at two years of age, then you should uh, suspect that child is malnourished. A good screening tool for community surveys is to use the mid-upper arm circumference because it's a lot easier to carry a measuring tape to measure the mid-upper arm circumference than to carry you know, weighing scales and stadiometers for measuring height. And then the children who have a value below 11.5 centimeters can then be referred for further, uh, more detailed evaluation because that's an indicator of severe acute malnutrition. What is the significance of malnutrition? Well, 35% or more than a third of the global disease burden in children under five can be attributed to uh, malnutrition. It's the cause of the largest proportion of global disability and risk of death in this age group. Most criti- the most critical period is actually in the first two years of life. This is a period when there's a high demand for good nutrition, there, but there's a limited quant- quality and quantity of diets many times. Um, and a high rate of infectious diseases in that age group. So that's the age group at greatest risk. And not only are there acute consequences, there are long-term consequences that go along with malnutrition. These children are more likely to become short adults, have lower educational attainment and economic status, and they tend to give birth then again to smaller infants who are at risk for um, complications as well. This map shows the prevalence of stunting in children under five years of age. You can see the predominance of the red in sub-Saharan Africa and the Indian subcontinent, the red countries having greater than a 40% prevalence of stunting uh, or chronic malnutrition. And in fact, there are 20 countries that account for over 80% of the world's undernourished children. And those are shown here with the different colors representing different regions of the world. So these are the countries that really have the greatest burden of malnourished children. But malnutrition is more than just simply a lack of energy intake or inadequate dietary intake. Yes, that's one of the immediate causes of malnutrition, along with infection, which increases the acute demand for uh, nutrients. There's, you should also consider malnutrition as a multifactorial process that involves many underlying causes, including household food insecurity. For example, maybe the home doesn't have adequate food. There may be inadequate care, Perhaps a mother is either deceased from HIV or she's out in the field working and the care of the infant is left in the hands of a 
uh, of another child who doesn't bother to feed the child uh, adequately. There may be an unhealthy home environment that leads to potentially infections uh, with poor sanitation and so forth. Also, income poverty, where families don't have adequate income to provide the protein-containing foods, for example, that children need. And sociopolitical factors can also uh, play a key role, for example, if there's conflicts or uh, displaced uh, peoples that is also part of the underlying cause. So in many ways, malnutrition is a social uh, disease as much as it is a medical issue to, to be tackled from a medical perspective. But I do want to focus on the interaction between infection and undernutrition because this is really a key concept for understanding how usually a child gets tipped over the balance into a downward spiral of malnutrition. Common infections that precipitate acute severe malnutrition are measles, parasitic infections which also drain the body of nutrients, diarrheal diseases which impair absorption of key nutrients, pneumonia, and HIV. But of of these, diarrhea is probably the most important in terms of causing uh, this acute severe malnutrition because you have associated with that malabsorption, anorexia, increased uh, breakdown uh, and need for uh, nutrients. And each episode of diarrhea multiplies the chances that a child will develop chronic malnutrition. So you have this kind of infection, increases the malnutrition. The malnutrition impairs the immunity, which makes them more susceptible to repeated infections. And this is how the downward spiral uh, often progresses. So key to preventing malnutrition is also preventing infections. So how do we evaluate a child when they come to see us and we see that they're likely malnourished? Well, you want to kind of get a little bit about their diet. Are they having any protein intake in their diet in particular? What does their diet consist of? What has been their breastfeeding history? Many times these children have been weaned from the breast, uh, which takes away a key source of protein uh, and calcium. Social circumstances, as I pointed out, are important to understand to really tackle the problem of malnutrition. Looking for signs of infection. Does the child have a cough, a fever, diarrhea, vomiting? Looking at the family, is there evidence of exposure to someone in the family with a chronic cough that could suggest tuberculosis? Did the mother have, does the mother have features of possible HIV infection? that the child may have also acquired during birth. What is the immunization status of the child? And then assessing their urine output and other signs for dehydration. Physical examination. Uh, Obviously, you want to know what their height and weight are. Checking their vital signs, their temperature, either for fever or hypothermia. Uh, Assessing them for evidence of shock looking for anemia through pallor, are they jaundiced, do they show signs of dehydration, which can be somewhat unreliable in children who are malnourished. Uh, And then looking at the eyes, for example, they may have corneal ulcerations from acute vitamin A deficiency, their eyes may be sunken uh, or show poor turgor that go along with dehydration. Some findings of the skin that can be associated with uh, Uh, Undernutrition are measles, for example, uh, is a key disease that also precipitates malnutrition. The child there shows a typical measles rash uh, with the conjunctivitis or red eyes along with cough and runny nose. The middle picture shows what we call a flaky paint dermatosis, which often goes along with malnutrition. It looks like paint flaking off the skin. And then the bottom picture shows what we call noma, which is a 
ulcerating infection, typically of the face, that occurs and causes deep ulcers, uh, in this case in the, in the nasal septum of a child who is severely malnourished. The mouth can show signs of oral thrush, uh, chelitis in the middle picture there where the angle of the mouth gets cracked, and another uh, infection that can appear in malnourished children is acute necrotizing gingival stomatitis where the, um, you can see the gingival papilla between the teeth become brown and ulcerated and necrotic uh, and foul-smelling. Assess them for evidence of um, edema or ascites. Uh, this can also be confused with nephrotic syndrome, which is a common cause of edema in the tropics as well. Uh, so you should check their urine for excess protein loss that could indicate another disease um, of nephrotic syndrome. But in this, ki- in a malnourished child who has edema and ascites, it's due to the low albumin uh, protein in the blood. So if you do have the capacity to perform laboratory investigations, these are some of the investigations you can pursue in these children. Many times you won't have uh, access to these, and they may not be critical, but you need to consider these abnormalities. Uh, Blood glucose, sodium, potassium, magnesium can be deranged in children with malnutrition. Uh, Check their hematocrit. Uh, Look for malaria. Assess their urine for protein. Looking at the stool for parasites or evidence of bacterial colitis, for example, with red cells and white cells. You can do a chest x-ray to exclude the presence of pneumonia that may not present with the typical features. Uh, You may see hyalur adenopathy as a sign of tuberculosis in children on an x-ray, or you may see evidence of heart failure. Uh, which can accompany malnutrition. You can do a TB skin test, although it may be negative in a child with severe malnutrition, even in the presence of tuberculosis, but certainly if it is positive, then that would raise and heighten your uh, suspicion for acute tuberculosis. And always consider HIV infection as a possibility, and uh, if you... Um, have the facilities, you can do blood cultures in in these children. What I'd like to now turn to is the treatment of severe acute malnutrition. Now, the World Health Organization has developed 10 steps for treatment that basically uh, have taken a mortality rate of 10 to 20% in these children and brought it down to below 5% if these steps are followed in the treatment of children with severe acute malnutrition. And these 10 steps are listed here. And you can see that the initial seven steps take place in the first week. And then the last three are part of what we call the rehabilitation phase. So the first week is a stabilization phase where you're just trying to get the child stable Uh, so that you can kind of uh, begin to rehabilitate them during the following weeks. So we're going to cover each of these 10 steps uh, and what the details of those involve. So the first thing you really need to consider is the problem of hypoglycemia. Uh, This, And if you're able to check a glucose, you should check it. If not, you should even assume that the child has hypoglycemia. Hypoglycemia can also be a sign of an underlying infection as well. And you can treat this with 10% glucose or sucrose given orally. We're not giving these uh, by uh, IV fluids. We want to avoid IV fluids in these children. So you can make a sucrose or you know, a solution from just table uh, sugar to give the child orally. If he can't take orally, you can give it by an NG tube. You can begin feeding the child at this point what we call starter formula. This is F75. It, it refers to 75 calories per 100 mils. And there are, <coughs> excuse me, 
there are uh, directions on you know that are available that can be easily found for how this formula can be prepared from local ingredients. But this is then fed every 30 minutes for two hours, and then you continue to feed the child um, to until you find a stable glucose and they don't have any more signs of hypoglycemia. The uh, second step is to treat hypothermia, and this is defined as a rectal temperature below 35.5 Celsius. This often goes along with the hypoglycemia, and for treating this, we don't want to use any hot water bottles uh, because those can be associated with burns in children. Rather, we would want to use a warmed blanket or use a heater or lamp that is at a good distance from the child so as to avoid burns. And skin-to-skin contact with the mother is another good option for uh, warming the child and keeping the child dry, um, You know, changing any wet um, um, diapers. Monitor the temperature until it's over 36.5. The third step is to treat and prevent dehydration. Again, we only use the IV route for hydration if the child is in frank shock. But clinical signs of dehydration are unreliable in these children. So any child who has diarrhea or vomiting, you should assume that they are dehydrated and use a um, rehydration solution. Now, in children who are malnourished, we don't use the standard rehydration, oral rehydration solution. There's a special solution for rehydration solution in malnutrition or resomal, and that has less sodium than your typical rehydration solution and more potassium because that is better suited for the electrolyte abnormalities that typically accompany severe acute malnutrition. You can monitor the input and output, urine output, uh, assess their pulse and the respiratory rate. Because if you see the respiratory rate increasing or the pulse increasing or they start to show signs of edema, they may be developing heart failure and you may be over-rehydrating them. Also, if you know, you want to consider the possibility of an underlying infection as well, increasing the, the respiratory rate and pulse rate. You can continue feeding them as tolerated, either the, from the breast or, or with the starter formula that I mentioned. The electrolytes need to be corrected. There's often electrolyte abnormalities. Hypernatremia is characteristic, an elevated total body sodium. Even though the serum sodium you measure may be normal or low, all severely malnourished children have an excess body sodium. And so that's why we use a low sodium rehydration solution. And if children do have edema, that doesn't mean we don't rehydrate them with sodium. Uh, And we certainly don't treat them with a diuretic to cause, to deal with their edema. But we shouldn't add salt to their prepared food because they don't have uh, a problem with having inadequate sodium. They tend to have low potassium. Again, the reason why extra potassium is added to the risomal. And they tend to have hypomagnesemia. And so there's also a formula that's available from WHO you can access online for um, electrolyte mineral solution that can be prepared and added to food or the the starter formula. The fifth step is to address infection. And fever may not be present in these children. They have impaired immunity. They may not respond in the typical fashion to uh, infection. And these underlying infections like pneumonia, for example, may not even be readily apparent. And so we routinely should give all children with severe acute malnutrition an antibiotic in the uh, acute stabilization phase. A broad-spectrum antibiotic like trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole is reasonable. 
If they have a positive blood smear for malaria, they should be treated for that. If they're over six months of age, they should be given the measles vaccine to prevent them from even getting measles while they're in the hospital. And avoid overcrowding in the ward of the hospital to prevent spread of infection from children, child to child. And obviously uh, exercise good hand hygiene to reduce the risk of uh, acquisition of infection in the hospital in these susceptible children. The sixth step is to correct micronutrient deficiencies. So we give all these children vitamin A. Vitamin A does reduce mortality from diarrheal disease, from pneumonia, from other uh, infections because it does improve the integrity of the mucosal surfaces. Uh, A multivitamin supplement is added. Uh, Folate is given as well because uh, oftentimes these children are at risk for Malaria, but also because they need to rebuild their uh, red cells mass as well. And then zinc and copper are added to the diet. This is also part of the electrolyte mineral solution that I mentioned and can be added to the, the formula. And then iron, I would want to mention in particular, should be avoided during the first week. And the reason we do that is because certain bacteria also like to have iron in order to grow. And so if we avoid iron in the first week while we get infection treated and under control, then we don't have to worry about making the infection worse by providing iron. So once the, usually in the second week we add the iron supplement. The seventh step is to start cautious feeding. So the key here is to do things slowly and gradually. So we start with small, frequent feeds, either given orally or by NG tube. We can start from the very first day, but we want to start with a formula that is low in osmolarity and low in lactose because these children often have diarrheal disease and a a lactase deficiency and can't absorb, uh, like... uh, lactose very well that's found in uh, dairy products. So our goal is to give them 100 calories per kilo per day and 1 to 1.5 grams of protein per kilo per day. And then 130 uh, mils per kilo per day of fluid. So if they already have edema, we can back off on the fluid requirement. We want to Continue to promote breastfeeding if they are uh, breastfeeding. We can feed with a cup and a spoon rather than a feeding bottle uh, to reduce the risk of infection as well. So the formula that's designed to begin with is uh, this F75 starter formula that has 75 calories per 100 mils. And so if you're providing that at 130 mils per kilo per day, then you will be able to meet these other requirements that are listed above. And then this eighth step is to achieve catch-up growth. And this is really signaled by a return of appetite. In the beginning, these malnourished children have a very poor appetite, and that's why you have to keep feeding them small amounts very frequently. As they improve nutritionally and their infection is treated, their appetite typically will return, and that's when they're really ready to start catching up on the growth. And this is when you can switch to F100 formula. And this is 100 um, calories per 100 mils with more protein content as well. And you want to gradually transition to that formula uh, to prevent heart failure. Again, this is, uh, if you overfeed a child, that is the, the major risk, is that you could tip them over into heart failure. And this would be signaled by increasing respiratory rate, increasing pulse rate. And so you want to increase each feed by about 10 mils until... There's some that remains uneaten. So you usually get up to about 200 mils per kilo per day. And you want to monitor their weight gain. And the typical weight gain goal is to see 10 
grams of weight gain for every kilo that they weigh per day. I want to mention ready-to-use therapeutic food. One example of this is plumpy nut. There are others out there, but this is one of the more um, commonly known ready-to-use therapeutic foods. You can also go on uh, the WHO website and learn how to prepare such foods from local ingredients, uh, for example, from you know milk powder, uh, peanut paste. Uh, the advantage of this particular ready-to-use food is it can be stored for a long period of time and it won't spoil. Uh, so it has a two-year shelf life, for example. They don't, you don't have to have clean water to prepare it like you would a formula. And uh, you don't need refrigeration after opening. So that makes it a good replacement for, example, the F100 formula. And so if a child is able and, uh, to eat and um, uh, take this, it's another option for, for use in areas that uh, malnut- uh, malnutrition is common. Um, and it has 500 calories per sachet for this particular um, food. Step nine is to provide sensory stimulation and emotional support. Many of these children have been ignored, whether for cultural reasons or other. You know, some I know in Nigeria many times when a child was malnourished, the the parents felt like, well, this child wasn't really meant to to live. And so they kind of neglect the child even more. And so you really want to try to help them see that this is a a reversible issue and that they want to provide more sensory stimulation to the child and and social engagement with the child. Structured play therapy can be part of your uh, regimen in the hospital uh, for these children. And then step 10 is to prepare for follow-up after recovery. Now, that's when you've achieved a weight for height Z-score of over minus one. And you can instruct the parent on good feeding practices. The child should eat five times a day, not just the three times a day that the adults eat. Uh, You want to talk to them about high-energy snacks between meals uh, and things like milk products or uh, some of the items shown here like peanut butter. Um, one of the problems that you sometimes encounter are cultural beliefs about certain foods that prevent them from including that in the child's diet. For example, eggs in Nigeria, in many cultures, they felt that that would spoil the child if you gave them eggs. Um, so, and yet it's a very rich source of uh, protein. Assist and encourage a child to complete each meal Electrolyte and micronutrient supplements can continue to be provided um, to add to the the food and formula and continued breastfeeding as often as the child wants and is willing to take. Remember to give vitamin A. Many uh, countries now have a national program included with their immunization program to provide vitamin A to children. Make sure that they get that to help prevent diarrheal disease and other infections, and then make sure that they catch up on all their immunizations that they may be due for according to the schedule of of the country where you are practicing. So the last thing I want to cover is how do we prevent uh, undernutrition because we'd rather prevent than treat undernutrition. And it really begins with good prenatal care and maternal nutrition. So we want to make sure that in our pregnant women that we're providing them with uh, good prenatal care, preventing malaria with malaria prophylaxis, preventing, uh, providing them with uh, information about important uh, nu- balanced nutrition. Exclusive breastfeeding, particularly in the first six months of life, uh, because typically if a woman does not exclusively breastfeed her child during the first six months, they are at a much greater risk for acquiring infections because they may use uh, improper, uh, uh, 
impure water for preparing formula, for example, and there's a much greater risk of the child, child acquiring infection and they, uh, when they're formula fed. And so the breast milk also provides key antib- antibodies for the child and uh, protects them from malnutrition. And they can continue that even up to the age of two. In fact, we often encourage women to continue breastfeeding uh, because that also even prevents them from getting pregnant soon after the, the delivery of their child as well. And uh, exclusive breastfeeding is associated with reduced morbidity and mortality due to diarrhea and due to uh, pneumonia. So when the child is ready to begin cereal and other uh, uh, complementary foods uh, after the age of six months, you want to also instruct parents in this, freak, this practice of frequent feeding of the child. It's not just the three times a day meal times. And you want to also encourage them to include some high-quality animal protein with the diet, like meat, fish, poultry, eggs that can add, even milk that can add that. But typically we don't introduce milk until after one year of age. But um, these other protein sources can be an important uh, key factor in preventing uh, malnutrition. And then preventing infection is critical. That's uh, where the immunizations come in. Safe water, sanitation, uh, hand hygiene all reduce the risk of diarrhea. Providing insecticide-treated bed nets to prevent malaria. And promptly recognizing and treating infections. So if a child does develop fever or diarrhea, making sure that they get treatment started early. Uh, There's one study that demonstrated that probiotics can provide a 57% reduction in the risk of diarrhea in children. Uh, Now, this is not yet part of uh, a lot of programs, but it may be something uh, to consider as well. So, in summary, undernutrition accounts for about a third of the global disease burden in children under 5. A 10-step approach that we discussed here, reduces mortality from severe acute malnutrition. And the first two years of life are the critical period for really preventing undernutrition. So, any questions? Yes? Um, you were talking about introducing animal protein into the diet. What about plant protein? Would that be just as good or just less quality? Well, the plant protein is less bioavailable than the animal protein in general. So if you want to have the greatest bioavailability of the protein source, uh, then really animal protein is best. But we encourage them to also include plant protein sources like legumes, peanuts, uh, soybeans. But some of those things are more difficult to, to digest, particularly some of the soybean proteins, for example. So... It, we, it is a good idea to include some like ground fish or some other protein. Egg is a good one to include in the, in the diet. Yeah. yeah, I was just um, about yogurt. I was wondering if there were any efforts with respect to local production of yogurts or probiotics. Yeah, I mean, that's a good suggestion to, you know, use yogurt as a source of probiotics. I don't, I'm not familiar with that. Well, I do know that in Nigeria there are, you know, people who make yogurt. The yogurt is available. I think in many countries, you know, people, there are some people who do know, I mean, who do incorporate yogurt in the diet. But I don't know, I'm not aware of widespread efforts to really make that as part of a programmatic effort. Yes. Well, HIV and breastfeeding is, um, you know, in some ways a difficult issue. 
Um, basically, if someone exclusively breastfeeds during that first six months, the rate of acquisition of HIV infection is still low. If they do mixed breastfeeding, where they have some breast and some formula, that's when you run into real problems because it's really the integrity of the child's gastrointestinal tract that influences if they acquire that HIV and uh, their nutritional status. So it's, it, in many ways, the children will do better and be less likely to acquire HIV if they're taking ex- exclusively breast feeding. Now, having said that, in some of the more developed areas, they may have a program for providing formula on a, in a reliable way, and if you, you know, have a more... Um, perhaps educated um, urban population of mothers, it may be reasonable to, you know, have them formula feed if they can afford that, if you feel that their child is otherwise at low risk for for malnutrition. But in a sense, malnutrition is somewhat of a greater risk for the child even than the HIV infection. And the risk of acquisition is relatively low if they exclusively breastfeed in that first six months. Yes. Um, I'm interested in the, uh, the fluffy nut um, peanuts, the main Yeah, I mean, that that's an interesting comment because certainly here in the U.S. we have very much heightened awareness of peanut allergies, but it really doesn't seem to be a significant problem, at least in Africa. I don't know if you're familiar with the hygiene hypothesis where, you know, children who are exposed to lots of infectious pathogens um, from a young age basically have less problems with allergy uh, issues and asthma. And so, because asthma has a much lower prevalence in uh, many of the developing countries. I mean, we've known, too, like children who grow up on a farm have much lower risk of allergy, allergic disease and asthma. So, it may be because of the alteration in the immune system that goes along with more common exposure to pathogens that they are in, uh, having that relative protection from allergic disease. And so the, the tiny risk of perhaps a peanut allergy is far outweighed by the nutritional benefit of providing a, a ready-to-use food source. Yes? So I'm, I'm somewhat new to all of this, so forgive my question if it's silly. But the once, so the who thing, I'm going to look up online, but once they start eating the plumping nut or the F100, and how long do they have to stay on that before they can then eat, you know, their regular diet? Well, you, usually they're considered recovered when their weight for height is over minus one. And so, you know, that's the point at which, you, you know, they're kind of ready to go home. I mean, they can still have the plumpy nut to eat at home and so forth. But it, you want to make sure that they're transitioned back to a diet that is healthy and, and well-balanced. and so should it be exclusive until they reach that weight? So it's just pumping that until they reach that weight? Well, it, it probably depends on whatever program that the child is a part of, but there's generally a time, I mean, many of these children are admitted to uh, like a feeding program or hospital, and they train the mothers in meal preparation, and that may be part of the, the program, and, you know, how to prepare, you know, balanced diet with carbohydrate and protein uh, source that are, are good. And some, sometimes they may not use plumping nut, but have some other complementary foods made from local ingredients that can be incorporated in the diet. Um, I mean, it's not that plumping nut, this is the only, or F100, this is the way you have to do it either, as long as you have some other, you know, locally relevant uh, diet that has a, a good source of protein and carbohydrate and energy. Um, 
couple places that I've experienced within in this in sub-area of the, the one of the classic things that was noticeable about the children of uh, their mothers was very oranginess to their hair, and obviously normally very dark hair. And I, but I'm not sure the etiology of that. Do you know what causes like the, the oranginess to the So the, the question is what causes the orange discoloration of the hair? It typically does go along with a protein... Uh, malnutrition, or I mean, what was classically described as kwashiorkor, uh, but I don't know the specific etiology. You know why the hair follicles no longer are adding the same amount of pigment to the hair. It may be that that's the protein is involved in that process of providing pigment to the hair. But certainly with treatment, that you know corrects. Yes. Yeah, uh, albendazole, mabendazole, I, you know, can perhaps contribute to anorexia, uh, as any medication uh, can have side effects. But, you know, if they have parasites, then they, w- they would be treated. If you assume that they ha- want to assume they have parasites and you don't have a means of uh, assessing that with a stool test and want to treat everybody, it's probably reasonable to eradicate the parasites I don't think it's an urgent thing. Uh, you know, uh, certainly some of these other things take precedence in terms of rehydration. Uh, but uh, I think once you, st- you start feeding them and they seem like they're heading in the right direction, it's reasonable to go ahead and give the antiparasitic drug. Yes? Do you have experience with um, the reintegration of these children back into the family? How much is there a failure they come back again on Right. I mean, this brings up that point that there are a lot of underlying social factors that cause and contribute to malnutrition. And, you know, those really do need to be addressed if you're going to prevent the child from coming back. I don't have any specific figures on how often, you know, that happens, but certainly we saw that as well. And that, that is a, an issue and definitely a problem. And that's why these programs really also need to, you know, see malnutrition as more than just a, a medical illness that you treat and discharge and they're all better. But that, you know, they need ongoing follow-up and addressing some of those issues. I think, you know, the key is just to keep following them. And, if, you know, even if you have community workers that can go out in the community and address some of those issues, it's, it's helpful. Yes? Just to piggyback on that, there's an organization called Gardens for Health, which has created a beautiful model of how to put families into a two-year program. I mean, any child that comes in malnutrition into public hospitals or clinics, they basically work with them over the next two years on agriculture and the social setting. And it's really, really proactive. Yeah, it sounds like a great program. Yeah. yeah. Um, to go back to the question of the albendazole, um, do you risk potentially exacerbating the parasitic infection by giving them, by treating their malnutrition initially with, you know, extra vitamins and such? Or are you potentially exacerbating that parasitic infection at that point? Uh, no, I, I don't think you're making a parasitic infection necessarily worse. Yes, the parasites are competing for nutrients with the child, but uh, definitely I think, you know, it's reasonable to... I mean, many times if you provide enough nutrients, you can provide for both the parasite and the, the child. But, um, you know, I think it's reasonable, obviously, to treat the, parasi- the parasitic infection fairly early on. Oh, no, I'm sorry, scratching. No, I'm the, behind you. <laughs> Do 
Yeah, I don't know about that particular program. I mean, peanut butter is commonly used in these ready-to-use uh, uh, foods. Is it a reasonable substitute if there, if there aren't other um, accessible things? Yeah, I mean, it's a good, a good protein source that's stable. As, as you are reintroducing the proteins, is that, is that an okay substitute for that? Mm-hmm, yeah. I mean, before these 10 steps came out, we used to use uh, what we called quash pap in Nigeria where it was corn porridge and with each cup they would add one egg and one um, tablespoon of oil and, you know, that provided a good, you know, protein energy source. Well, I think uh, usually the oral route is the preferred, and if they can't take it orally, you can give it by NG tube, but uh, in a crushed form or liquid form. Um, I'm not aware of all you know any difference in terms of the dosing. Is I just use the standard dose per kilo. All right, two more questions. Yes. So when you were talking about stimulation, you said that really 15 to 30 minutes a day just for a child, as far as that goes, playtime. Yeah, that's more for, you know, structured playtime as part of the overall program. But obviously you want to encourage the mother in doing that with her child throughout the day. Yeah, I think that's also an important part of this instruction and in how to feed with a cup and a spoon. Typically, you have them, you know, you show them how to do it and have them hold the baby and, you know, how to give, you know, with a cup and a spoon and help the child to take it and with the baby held in their arms. But I mean, even the aides or the nannies that they hire, they don't hold any of the babies with them. Mm, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that we noticed in here is uh, the periodic treatment of uh, the, the kids. The orange hair reminds me, we see a band of orange hair and then a band of normal hair, that, and then a band of orange hair, uh, which says two things. One is the treatment is effective, but it's not sustained. And I, and I think maybe maybe in that setting, that's where the public health people come in and say, whoa, you know, where sure. we are failing, we are succeeding yet failing. Mm-hmm. We have a solution, but it's not applied yet. Yeah. That's a good point. All right. Well, thank you all for coming. I want to respect your time. If you have other questions or want to ask me after, you can certainly feel free to come up. Thank you.